Hello listeners, this is Annabelle Higgins, your host of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare, and welcome to today's episode. Today, my wonderful guest is Jacqueline Hume. Jacqueline is a Senegalese-American actor, lawyer, and French-English-Spanish mediation and negotiation teacher. Wow. She is passionate and insatiable when it comes to theatre and film. Her favourite theatre credits include Stool Pigeon in August Wilson's King Hedley II, Adenike in Jocelyn Bio's uh, Nollywood Dreams, Marianne Angela in Lauren Gunderson's The Revolutionists, Nora in Lucas Nath's A Doll's House Part Two, Romeo in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Mrs. Cheveley in Oscar Wilde's An Ideal Husband, and so many more. You can find many of her virtual productions on YouTube at Say Jackie. The rest of her social media links I will put in the podcast description because you do not want to miss this wonderful person. One other credit I would like to add, the <laughs> wide and universal theatre's King John, which just happened to be directed by myself and Fena Kapala, who you will have already heard on this podcast. Welcome, Jackie. It is lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Annabelle. Lovely to be here. <laughs> it's always amazing working with you, honestly. Jackie played Hubert and Cardinal Pandolf in King John, and honestly, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you do. I'm definitely not biased. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wonderful production, and y'all did an incredible job. Oh, please, you were right. much better. <laughs> no, not at all. And you you should watch also Annabelle's performance on this. I'm just... Yes, I played Arthur, Fenner Capella played Constance, and... I have already mentioned Jackie's roles, and there are many more wonderful people who I will hopefully get on this podcast. So, Jackie, to begin with, I want to talk about how you first got into Shakespeare. Great. Yeah. Um, in middle school, I believe. So I went to French school uh, most of my life until 10th grade. And in middle school, I believe we read first... Actually... It was a very quick introduction to Romeo and Juliet. It wasn't really an in-depth view or anything at all. And it wasn't until junior year, junior year? Not junior year, I'm crazy. Uh, until my 10th grade in French school that I did Hamlet. And that was really the real introduction to Shakespeare was that. And um, my teacher liked my voice. <laughs> so she asked me to like- Well, it's a lovely voice. Thank you. <laughs> She asked me to do some of the the soliloquies and monologues from Hamlet, like to present to the class. And we really like got into it um, that year. And I, I was very intrigued. I don't think I really connected to Shakespeare though then. It's just, it was my introduction. Like I connected way more in undergrad. Well, Hamlet is a great play to start with, although it can be somewhat daunting considering its length. <laughs> Yes, it's so long. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how long is it when it's staged fully? Uh, four and a half hours or four hours? I don't know. If you do the whole thing from start to finish, yeah, it's going to be close to four hours and some and plus. Yeah, and when you consider that most of it is Hamlet desperately procrastinating, <laughs> it's quite funny. I don't know if he's procrastinating. Like the way I see it is he is not, not to say Hamlet is whiny. Hamlet is super whiny, but I think he's he's trying to process a lot in not a ton of time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I was, yeah, being a little facetious, I guess, with my comment. Also, the really, like, the deep philosophy behind stuff like to be or not to be, oh, and, oh that this too, too solid flesh would melt, all mm -hmm. of that. Oh, I love that. That monologues. is a lot to throw at students, isn't it? And, you know, I mean, every time I read Hamlet and particularly his soliloquies, something new jumps out at me, a new nuance as such of the fear and the confusion and the anxiety that he's feeling. What was that like for you when you first read it? I enjoyed some of the plot lines. You know, to be honest, I don't remember too, too much from, high, from that particular, like, uh, Hamlet in high school. I remembered more. So I went from French school to boarding school afterwards. And in boarding school, um, I, I took a, an advanced English lit class. And that's where we did a more in-depth of Romeo and Juliet. And I enjoyed that a lot more. Like my teacher was brilliant, first of all. 
he just made the whole class super interesting and engaging. And yeah, I just, I really love, I really love the play. It spoke to me more. I think I understood the language a lot better at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet is definitely a little more accessible, not only in terms of length, but for, especially for young people, it's based around two central young characters, teenage characters. Mm-hmm. Juliet's not quite 14. Romeo, not quite sure where he is age-wise. In my head, I put him between like 16 and 18. But right. that's up for debate, as the ages of many characters in Shakespeare, <laughs> apart from like a handful. Which is why it, when he mentions a character's age, it's normally quite important to the plot, which I found really interesting. So, yeah, it's it's good to hear that you had a positive school experience of Shakespeare because in many cases, uh, as a student at the moment, um, who has uh, switched a few years ago to homeschooling, when I studied Shakespeare in school, I saw that people weren't necessarily getting into it. We were doing much ado about nothing. And it's such a great play. But in the first exercise that my teacher got us to do was to list the names of as many Shakespeare plays as we could before we even looked at Much Ado. We had to list as many Shakespeare plays as we could. I think I got to around 20. And I mean, it's great to do that, but I felt it made Shakespeare a little bit daunting, you know, just to look at all like this list of works that he's done. And considering that he's a compulsory part of the curriculum, I can imagine some people who've never read him going, oh God, am I going to have to study all of these? Right. No, absolutely. And there's also the fact that uh, what people don't realize is that Shakespeare is really like another language. It's not English, <laughs> right? It's not, it's not our English, especially us in the U.S. Um, like it's not accessible for kids in the U.S. necessarily. Like they have to learn a whole new lexicon, a whole new vocabulary to really understand what he's saying in many ways. Romeo and Juliet, like you said, not only because of the length, but actually because of the language is one of the more accessible ones because it's one of the more, like the easiest to understand at its at its core. And that's why they made a huge blockbuster, right, hit with, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Whereas Hamlet, <laughs> Of course, the French, they don't care. <laughs> They're like, let's throw you a, a, a nice doozy one. It's <laughs> uh, not, is not as easy <laughs> to understand just on its face. Yeah. I mean, did you, did you study Shakespeare in French? It was actually my English class that we did Hamlet. So no, I, I never read um, Shakespeare in French until my adult years, uh, right? And Ooh. again, I, I never, really got into well not never i didn't get into shakespeare until my undergrad years when i took a shakespeare acting class and that class really reeled me in (laughs) um yeah it was an incredible class where we worked on monologues and scenes and um yeah i just first of all my my fellow actors in that class were brilliant in their interpretations. And my professor who owned his own theater in Vancouver, British Columbia called Pacific Theater. uh, He is also a brilliant professor, actor, director. I worked with him in many capacities uh, while I was in Vancouver. He taught me two classes as well as he was my director for uh, two shows that I did at his company, at his theater. Um, And I just, I think that's when really the language clicked for me because I, uh, I speak three languages and languages come in my brain are pretty easy to grasp because I see languages like math. They're a series of, uh, you know, algebraic calculations like X plus Y equals Z. And once you can break down how a language is, it's pretty easy to then for me in my brain to put it together, to make sentences, to talk, to, you know, eventually uh, be able to ha- communicate with another person and understand them and be understood. That's it's really cool to think of uh, Shakespeare as a different language. It reminds me of some of the research I've done into Shakespeare because I'm obsessed. <laughs> and uh, I was looking at language, specifically uh, how we understand language, mm-hmm. because I was wondering possibly why there's this disconnect between students in Shakespeare and when you listen to someone speaking a language that you know 
the mirror neurons in your brain reflect on what they're saying, that you understand what they're saying because the mirror neurons react almost as if you're saying it yourself, I think. If there's anybody who knows stuff about the brain listening to this, they're probably going to think I'm crazy. But I did this research a while ago. But if you're listening to someone speaking a language you don't know, then your mirror neurons don't react uh -huh. in the same way. You don't understand what they're saying on a neurological level mm -hmm. as much as, you know, a semantic level. Which, yeah, it's really interesting to think that maybe then Shakespeare is literally a foreign language to people. It absolutely is. Again, especially in the United States, I see it time and time again. The number of high schoolers who don't, and even adults, the number of adults who have no idea what Shakespeare is saying. Which is why when you go to a lot of plays here, especially plays by William Shakespeare, you will see the average um, patron is much older. You do not see a lot of young people in the audience because a lot of people, I, my friends included, right, have told me, I don't understand Shakespeare. <laughs> I don't get it, right? And a lot of the ways it's that you, you have to explain to them, you absolutely do get it. And the reason why I think um, people who are classical actors, trained or not, okay, you don't have to be trained, but those who are really gifted in the craft are able to tell a story without relying on the language. The language is the cherry on top, but really it is the uh the emotions and your body that really tells the story before like before you even get to the language yeah i think that's also really important when you look at shakespeare it's also very much about looking at what's not written on the page as much as what is written on the page because when you read a line and when you speak it out loud that can make all the difference but my yeah. introduction to shakespeare was through reading I read most of the Shakespeare plays before I even watched any of them. I went to Shakespeare's Globe to see the Comedy of Errors in 2018 on a school trip. The Globe Theatre is such a beautiful, immersive space. It really feels like a world of its own. When you go in there, when you when the performance starts, when you know the the groundling area is full, when you see the people in the stalls around you and the actors come on stage, there is such a powerful feeling that I can't encapsulate in words. Once again, going back to Hamlet's, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. And that's not exactly what happens when you perform, but you manage to slip into another, char another character's identity for a moment on stage, whilst also maintaining your own. And you can learn so much from almost trying on different lives, as it were, on stage which is simply magnificent. And that's another of the reasons I love Shakespeare because he has so many different characters. And that, my dear listeners, is going to be the topic of season two. So has there been a particular performance of any of Shakespeare's plays that has really you know, resonated with you above all the rest? <laughs> oh, Annabelle. Just like you are passionate about Shakespeare, as am I, my friend, as am I. Um, during the pandemic, just to give a little intro, uh, during the pandemic, so before the pandemic, I had never been cast in anything by William Shakespeare in person, live, never. Like I had auditioned for things, but had not been cast. And so I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, I, I probably lean more towards modern plays and classical plays. Maybe it's just not for me and I will audition rarely. <laughs> so I, I got cast in Medea uh, by Euripides and that was the one classical play I did um, post undergrad and during my, my theatrical career and all of the others were modern plays. I was like, yeah, classical plays. It's just, I'm not probably really good for this. like then that's fine. Pandemic hits and a bunch of groups uh, pop up doing Zoom readings and Zoom performances. I like to call them more performances than readings because 
they're not really just reading. Um, and I became involved with a lot of them and was like, yeah, okay, cool, cool, cool. I'll, I'll participate. And because Shakespeare is in the public domain, it was very popular for a lot of groups to do Shakespeare. One of the first ones that I really, really loved was Much Ado About Nothing. And I hadn't read or seen or touched Much Ado About Nothing since actually um, my uh, middle school years when I went to the Kennedy Center and saw it and loved it. And I got to play Beatrice and was like, yeah, I love this. This is so good. She is so fun. Uh, I also saw the performance at the Public Theater in New York of Much Ado About Nothing, which was an all black cast. And I loved their interpretation and I loved um, Danielle uh, played the uh, played Beatrice and she killed that role <laughs> and inspired me to to have a lot of my own cultural sass to my Beatrice. So that's the first one that really sparked joy. And after that, I mean, there's Romeo and Romeo and Juliet, which I fell in love. I always thought I wanted to play Juliet because another issue that I have within the classical world is typecasting. Um, and because I'm this tall, statuesque, imagine, very tall, 185 centimeters, um, Black woman, um, I take a lot of space, I have a deep voice, and now I have short hair. No one wants to cast me as Juliet. <laughs> and I always thought, well, I hate being typecast. I like to transform and play any and all characters that I can, as long as I can play them truthfully and honestly. But I got to play Romeo instead because somebody wanted to play Juliet and I said, fine, I'll play Romeo. And I love Romeo. Yeah, he's also a little whiny, but... <laughs> he's, it's funny, he's emotional. <laughs> he's more emotional than Juliet. Um, absolutely. But but that is the fallacy of of the sexes because we like to, you know, think that men are not emotional and that's... Uh, most of my guy friends are more emotional than I am. That's a fact in my life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it's funny because I read about also the, do you know the Lady Romeo, Charlotte Cushman? Oh, no, I don't think I do. You should read about her. You should read about her. She is a fascinating woman. I believe she was the first, if not one of the first. Um, she's an American actress, but who uh, worked a lot in Europe. And she was a lesbian, as well as a famous classical actor who became extremely famous when she played Romeo. And she was called the Lady Romeo. And critics said that Romeo transformed. Romeo made a lot more sense after she played him. And saying that adding a female's perspective to Romeo really made a lot more sense to the character than the way a lot of male actors had played him in the past, which was fascinating. I mean, yeah, Romeo is definitely very changeable. He's, as you said, he is emotional, but once again, he's, he's young, he's growing up in this play. He's growing up in an atmosphere of violence, of this really honestly very confusing war between the Montagues and Capulets. I mean, nobody's quite sure how it started in the play. Right, that's true. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. It's just a thing. And when he comes on and he he sees, you know, the traces of the uh, brawl at the beginning of the play, he, he doesn't even want to know because he... He's, I'm going to butcher Shakespeare here, forgive me, listeners. I think he says something like, he's much to do with hate, but more with love. Oh, brawling love. Oh, loving hate. Oh, anything of nothing first create. Mm, that was pretty good. That has stuck with me. Yes. Because emotions are never as simple as love and hate. There is always something light and dark about every single feeling we have. Yeah, the language though in Romeo and Juliet, like to this day, I'm just like, ugh, that I think it's some of the most poetic of Shakespeare's works that I that I have read and performed is in Romeo and Juliet. And I just, I'm in love with a lot of the language. Love is a smoke made with the fume of sighs. There's 
a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And then there's, ask for me tomorrow, and you shall find me a grave man. <laughs> oh, Mercutio. R.I.P. R.I.P. Mercutio. <laughs> yes. And we talked a lot about, not a lot, but about uh, some of the comedies. I, though, am, I think, I don't know if I love the comedies as much as I love the tragedies. There is just something about the tragedies and the histories, though, that hits really, really, like, hard. <laughs> Again, I, I love Romeo and Juliet. I love Much Ado About Nothing. I love The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Um, there are lots of comedies that are incredible. Love, 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 love them. I love The Tempest. I've done it three times this year. It's crazy. Oh, it's crazy. I love The Tempest. The tragedies, though, are, are where I, like, really want to do in real life. Like, Macbeth is on the top of my list <laughs> to do multiple times with multiple characters. I was in Macbeth in a school play. I mean, I was one of the youngest people in the play because it was usually like performed by the sixth formers generally. But I was one of, I think, four year sevens who were brought into the production as extras. And I played, okay. uh, you know, uh, the witches raise like the spirits to say like Macbeth, Macbeth, beware Macduff. That was literally my own apparition. Yeah, they managed to share some of the witches' lines. Apparition—that's the word I want. Yeah, I was like, were you one of the apparitions? Yeah, we shared uh, some of the witches' lines as well. So I was on stage with them, and the atmosphere of Macbeth. I mean, my school had like a, a trapdoor under the stage and wow. everything, and we had like scaffolding for the castle. It was very cool. So cool. And doing that, I mean, even the witches, they had these like these uh, little things attached to the house that could shoot flames. Like, wow. So, yeah, us year sevens, we were kind of standing next to them, like, this is cool, but we don't want to be set on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, true, true. (laughs) So, yeah. We were only as close as we had to be. Makes sense. Makes sense. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And we had tons of like red acrylic for the blood. Mm. But under yeah, under the trap door, there was just a bowl of red acrylic paint uh-huh. that people would occasionally just dip their hands and you know like wipe it on their face and everything. Wow, I love it! I love it. So many good memories from that production. I wish I could have played a big a role though. <laughs> well, you can do it in the future instead. Fingers crossed. Maybe we'll work together. Yep, absolutely. Yes, I am always up to doing Macbeth. You don't even have to ask. <laughs> Like, like I said, top, that is in my top list of things to do is this play. Good to know. Good to know. But there are a lot of other tragedies I'm also, like, really <laughs> keen on doing. Now I'm really interested if there's a particular play that you've watched or performance of Shakespeare that you've watched that has, you know, stuck with you. I mean, chief and foremost is the public theater is much ado about nothing. Uh, in here in New York City, um, like I said, you know, it's rare that you see an all black cast of classical shows and for them to do it and to do it so well and to make sense and to add in the joy and the culture of, um, you know, of African-American culture here in the U.S. was incredible. Um, and I was just like, ooh, ooh, I really love that. would love to do that sometime in my career. Because Shakespeare's not for everyone until everyone has the opportunity to perform him, you know? Exactly. And to see themselves in it. Yeah, exactly. Too. Especially, right? If you, if you don't see yourself, wh- why are you going to connect? Yeah. I mean, I, f- I believe that Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare is universal. His stories are universal. Yes. He can be found yes. anywhere in the world. Like, I believe that personally. Mm-hmm. But... Many people will not give that the chance or the opportunity if they don't see themselves in those roles and stories, right? Which is fair, which is fair. Why does it have to be all men? Why does it have to be all white, right? Like it was back in the day, it doesn't. Yeah, it really doesn't. Shakespeare wrote all the world's a stage and all the men and women are players. Mm -hmm. And that means something. 
Right. That means something different to what it meant 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But at the same time, it also means, it means so many things. It means what it meant 400 years ago and so much more. It's really interesting to interpret classical plays through a modern lens. Yes. Think of how they still apply in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, it astonishes me how Shakespeare managed to capture so many raw human emotions in his works and the sheer complexity of them. Absolutely. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think another performance that really um, hit for me was Romeo and Juliet, um, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. And I, I just loved how, again, showing us a different perspective, how you can make this older language feel modern, just when changing costumes, changing settings, right? Um, I, I thought it was brilliant and still keeping the language as it was. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really brilliant. I, I loved it a lot. Another one, uh, which is not a very well-known movie, it's called O. And it's a, a reimagining of Othello. Um, it's also an American movie with, um, I believe it's Mackay Pfeiffer, who plays Othello and Julia Stiles uh, plays Desdemona, the character of Desdemona. Uh, and Josh Hartnett plays the character of Iago and they reimagine it in um, a high school or, or college. I think they're in college and they're basketball players, um, Othello and Iago. And uh, I just was like, oh, this is so good. Again, bringing it to the modern times to make it accessible for when I watched it, which I was a kid when I watched it. Uh, but still with the story of Othello by William Shakespeare. I have actually heard of it. I am working my way through the Globe Guide to Shakespeare and there's so much great information in that book, including like film adaptations of all the different plays. So yeah, I have come across O and I really do want to watch mm -hmm. it because it sounded very interesting. Do it. It's great. Yeah. And I also have not seen the Leonardo DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet either. <gasps> so I need to check that out. Annabelle. I don't watch many films. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't watch films at all? Uh, I do at times. Just not often. <laughs> I mm. have watched Pride and Prejudice. Many. Which one? Ha! Is the question. It's always the question. 2005, the year I was born. Oh, you, you watched the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. It's aight. It's not as good as the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. Okay. In my book. <laughs> I'll have to check That's it out. That's the I'll OG one. <laughs> That's the best one. And it's the long one because it literally follows, I think, almost every page of the actual novel of Pride and Prejudice. So it's long. We love accurate book adaptations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is. It is faithful. <laughs> and long but fun still fun oh it upsets me so much when people aren't faithful to the text of whatever book they're adapting to a movie it's just i guess for me it depends right because sometimes it's very difficult to adapt uh, a book to a film especially keeping in mind your audience keeping in mind their attention spans <laughs> a lot of people don't have super long attention spans um, like Harry Potter, for example, is, is a great, to me, a great example in that I read all of the books. I was a big fan growing up. I was just as big of a fan of the movies and I did not care a lick, me personally, that they didn't follow letter by letter, word for word, the book. I understood. I understood why. And I was totally okay with it. Yeah. Uh, I was the same. I enjoyed the books and I then enjoyed the movies as well. I still do prefer the books though. <laughs> anyway, back to Shakespeare. Yeah. So you've talked about these performances that have shaped your work. I mean, working with Shakespeare's text as a whole, how has that impacted you as an actress, as a performer? I think it has made me a better actor. Um, you know, something that I, I realized, especially during the pandemic, there was a lot of um, discussion during the pandemic about why, why are British actors coming and stealing roles here in the US? Um, you know, like Cynthia Erivo played Harriet Tubman, 
is an African-American um, uh, icon, quite frankly speaking, and she's not African-American, she is British. Um, and so people were very upset and they've been very upset for quite a while, actually, um, finding out all of these like Christian Bale, or why, why are these people uh, taking our roles here in the US? And I realized, you know, when you are well-versed especially in Shakespeare. I think it makes you a really great actor because like we mentioned before, you have to be an extremely good storyteller to make someone who doesn't understand the language prima facie, like on its surface and still feel something. That takes a skill, right? That only very, very, very good storytellers have. And the UK has done an incredible job in preparing or in uh, either having people who have the natural talent or and as well as uh, helping people shape and, and learn these skills in order to become these kinds of storytellers where they can tell a story without you actually knowing the language. And that that is what I love about Shakespeare is I can say something and you don't know word for word what I'm saying exactly, but you still feel what I'm saying and you join me on the journey of what I'm saying and you kind of get bits and parts of what I'm saying and, and you're impacted by it. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, there, there will be key words and there will be sentiments that will jump out at you, even if you don't understand everything mm -hmm. that you hear there will be words or maybe phrases that will stick in your mind and you'll turn them over and you'll think, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. And then when you approach the rest of it, sometimes it might take on some, like a completely different meaning. Like when you say to be or not to be, mm -hmm. out of context, that can mean a lot of different things. But in Hamlet, he's literally talking about living mm -hmm. or just not dying. Living, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But to be or not to be, just in general, being has so many different meanings in this world. Being the best person you can be, being something more than you believe you can be. Absolutely, yeah. And the yeah, I just and I I also feel like the language in Shakespeare is like poetry, a lot of the times for me. Like there's a rhythm, there is a cadence, there is. It's like music, like French, right, has a musicality when you see English as well, right, has its own mu musicality and cadence that you have. And so does, so does the language that is in Shakespeare's plays. It has this music and melody that just, to me, is enchanting. Yes. If music be the food of love, play on. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, the use of music in Shakespeare's plays is a whole other thing that I'm not even going to get into because I could talk forever. <laughs> and once again, as I've mentioned in other episodes, there's been a ton of music written inspired by Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. There's one really interesting piece by Beethoven. Uh, I think it's a concerto. I can't mm. remember the name of it, but I know it's based on the Tempest, and I know it's complex, and I know that we have the music notes, okay. and I know that we have a grand piano, and I know that I want to try learning it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. Uh, although when is a question. You are young, Annabelle. You have so many, <laughs> so much time to do all these things. Yeah. So honestly, there's so much to say about Shakespeare, but. I guess I really, one thing I really want to ask, and I've been asking, I've been asking everyone so far this question, and I'm probably going to ask everyone this in the future. So if any future guests are out there, be prepared. <laughs> what does Shakespeare mean to you? That is a, a wonderfully philosophical question. Because to be honest, I don't know. I don't know what Shakespeare means to me like the man, you know, the, the actual physical being of William Shakespeare. I, I'm intrigued by him. I'm uh, amazed by him. I think his life and story of him himself uh, is incredible um, and very interesting. 
what little we have of it. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and I've liked interpretations, right, of um, who William Shakespeare is, um, like in equivocation. If you've not read that play, you absolutely should. It's one of my favorite plays about Shakespeare. Um, it's incredible. And his relationship with his daughter, like, I'm just, oh, love, love, love. But yeah, I don't know what he means to me. Uh, I think his works mean a lot to me. Um, they mean a lot to me because I, I relate so much to so many of his characters and so many of his stories just make me feel. They make me feel and they make me feel deeply. And I feel invested in the story, the characters, um, as well as in interpreting the stories and characters myself and seeing other people's interpretations of these stories and of these characters. Um, there's something beautiful and delicious about um, so many of his stories and characters. And that, that means very, very much to me. Yeah, they are gifts that never stop giving. Never. Because they can be reinterpreted in so many ways to convey so many different messages. Mm. In so many different styles, they can be cut, they can be edited, they can be used as inspiration for other works of art in different mm. mediums. Yeah. And that is just as fantastic. I mean, I've read a few plays that were, uh, a few works that were written by David Garrick, inspired by Shakespeare, where he would take characters such as Catherine and Petruchio from okay. The Taming of the Shrew, and he wrote mm -hmm. his own play based on Shakespeare's text, but it's a little different, shall we say. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating to see how Shakespeare has evolved. I recently bought a copy mm -hmm. of Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb, and I'm really interested to read it, to see how they wrote these stories for young people, because that mm -hmm. is a real issue for me, the way the stories are told to young people. Mm. In what way? Well, if you oversimplify them, then they can seem, they can seem a little mundane. But if you, if you throw too much at people at once, like you wouldn't read Hamlet to a, a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. And I approached, I approached right. Shakespeare around the age of six or seven. That was when I started mm. reading his works. Wow. And yes, I dove in straight at the deep end. I started reading. <laughs> I started reading the plays and thinking, oh, this sounds very pretty when I read it aloud, but I don't get a word of it. <laughs> but then I started, because I immersed myself and I read it even without understanding it, mm. after a while, I naturally did start to understand it mm. just because I got used to having it surrounding me. Right. But it's not the same. It's not the case for everyone because... The way Shakespeare is revered culturally can make him really daunting to approach. It's like that exercise I talked about earlier where you list all of the Shakespeare plays, 40-odd plays, depending on, you know, mm -hmm. which plays you consider Shakespeare and which you don't. All of these plays can seem slightly terrifying to look at. Right. And then when you get down to the nitty-gritty of each of them and the problems that exist mm -hmm. in nearly all of them, because there's something dark in nearly every play there's death in literally all of them in some respect is there yeah in some way it's at least referenced even if it's not on stage or actually happening in the play like in love's labor's oh. lost um the king of france dies at the end of the play and and the princess of france doesn't end up marrying Oh, uh, Ferdinand, and instead they make the guys wait for a year, and that is why I would be very interested to read Love's Labours 1, yes. but lost play, or is it much ado? We will never know. Mm, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Making it accessible, accessible to younger people. I think actually going into it and, and really breaking it down, like, I, I really appreciate... Um, you know, different groups like Lit Charts, for example, or Spark Notes. I appreciate those uh, sites 
right, and the people who run those sites for trying to make Shakespeare more accessible to people, <laughs> trying to break down. I love the Spark Notes. Right, thing. Spark Notes are like clutch. I remember. I think we had Spark Notes even when I was a kid, like in high school, and it was so helpful in being like, oh, that's what they're saying. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's really great that people are creating tools for young people to understand Shakespeare. The problem sometimes is when people rely on mm. these tools entirely in order to understand, which, yeah, I've seen students just, like, copy and paste yeah. the Spark Notes page and try and rewrite it in their own words. Oh, that's so annoying. Because there's so much fun mm -hmm. to be had with all of the texts. Yeah, there is, but, you know... In hindsight, I remember when I was right back in school and in, in middle school and high school, especially in the French school, we had 13 subjects, <laughs> right? Ooh. From middle school to high school, I had 13 subjects. And there was only so much time, right, between school and activities to really dedicate to every single thing we had to do. And like, I remember some, some books I read fully. Some books, sorry, teachers, you probably already knew anyway. I did not read fully. <laughs> I skipped. I asked friends, like, what happened in chapters four to eight? <laughs> Tell me, right? I looked it up once the internet was a thing for my generation. Because, yeah, like, didn't have the time nor the energy to do it all. Yeah, that is something that I'm increasingly understanding now, that life is getting busier and busier. Yeah. I, I guess I've always been a bookworm, so I will probably read anything I can get my hands on. <laughs> so, I totally get that. Yeah. yeah. Do you know how many books you've, you've read so far? Do you have any idea? Have you like started a, an Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> I try to read at least 50 books a year. Okay. That's not including like uh, articles, journals, magazines. Mm -hmm. That's just pure books. My actual reading is probably a lot more vast. It's wild. And have you read all of Shakespeare's plays and sonnets? Yes. All of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Impressive. Uh, I'm, there may be a couple sonnets I haven't read, but I've read all his poetry. I've read most, if not all, of the sonnets, and I've definitely read all the plays at least more than once that is very impressive i have tried to go through all of the plays i can't say i still fully understand all of them there are some plays that i am right. still a little lost with mm. but i think that's the fun of it you come back to it and you think okay so this is what i thought of it last time yeah let's approach this differently mm. and see what i what i can make of it and that's yeah that's why i love doing the obscure ones in shakespeare that's why for instance uh, I suggested we do King John. Yeah, so glad you did. Oh my goodness. She hadn't read it at the time and then she read it and she was like, yes, we're doing this. It was actually on my list of, of histories to do. So I was glad. When yeah, uh, it's actually the histories. I did not really read until I started doing stuff with TSMGO. Okay. And then when I started doing fan art, I had to hurriedly read each play <laughs> so I could figure out what to draw. But it was really cool. I think once again, once you, you know, you... You mentioned all the different Henrys and, you know, all the different politics and all the historical nuance in the plays. And it can become scary and hard to approach. But in the end, it's just human relationships. It's just manipulation yes. and deception and love yeah. and hate. And that's it. That's all it is. A bunch of shenanigans holding it all together. <laughs> because, yeah, everything that's done is in the history plays absolutely it comes from basic desires for power or sometimes not for power sometimes for love sometimes for darker motivations for revenge mm -hmm. or out of bitterness in the case of richard iii in particular yeah. he's you know because of his disfigurement he's been mm -hmm. treated yes pretty awfully by society right as a whole yes. because of his difference and as uh, he says something along the lines of, as I cannot play a lover, I'm determined to prove a villain. Mm -hmm. He's understood that he's been typecast in his own world. And so he decides, fine, if that's all you're going to see me as, then that's who I, I, 
guess I have to be. And that's so sad. Right, exactly. That's why try as you might, you really can't hate Richard. It's, it's just like, he's not a good guy, but <laughs> you just can't hate him. And that's part of his genius as such. It's part of Shakespeare's genius, the many faces of William Shakespeare. Oh yeah. And I think that's one of the, the other thing that I love, 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 love about, you know, William Shakespeare's plays is that people are able to interpret them in many different ways. Uh-huh. Um, and some of the time it doesn't work. <laughs> some of the time we got to tell you people, those interpretations aren't right. <laughs> but many times it does. Many times it beautiful to see how one actor will do it very differently from another yeah oh that is one of the best yeah that's one of the best parts of seeing uh, Shakespeare performed yes I mean yeah I went to the Globe this summer to see mm -hmm. King Lear oh magnificent oh, love that play magnificent I don't have words mm. Catherine Hunter was brilliant, and Michelle Terry as Cordelia and the Fool. The Fool mm. reminded me of uh, her Hamlet as well, which was really interesting. Because I, I only saw Was that. the Fool a woman? Yeah, uh, played by Michelle Terry. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that choice. Yeah, it was very cool. Well, mm. I mean, in my eyes, the Fool was almost kind of androgynous if you know what i mean the fool didn't really I totally can see that a specific box mm. the fool just you know comments on the action as like you people are making a mess of everything <laughs> absolutely no i can totally see that and it's 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 really sad when you see the fool die and then yeah when leah comes on with cordelia's body and says that my poor fool is hanged as well these two really important characters who yeah probably were doubled up historically oh i'm getting emotional just thinking of it there's so much to say about all these different plays and i don't think people will ever get enough of them i don't think people will ever stop talking about them when there's so many different ways to look at them mm -hmm. absolutely and so long as people are able to do that, right? Are able to make these stories relatable to others and to interpret them in ways that surprise and amaze people. It will always be relevant. Yeah, it'll always be relevant and it will always be insanely, insanely powerful because there are moments in these plays that will just capture you and you'll think, I have been in this position. I have felt this exact emotion. Mm -hmm. It's not in all the plays, but there will be some character or some line or just some word in one of, at least one of Shakespeare's plays. Come on, there are over 30 of them. There's gotta be something. <laughs> right. There will, be, there will be a tiny moment, a detail that will spark something that will feel familiar. And I think that's why I love Shakespeare. I have found a lot of things that I have been unable to express in his works. And I wonder, God, how did this guy have such a mind-blowing grasp of the mind? It's one of those questions we'll never really be able to answer because we will never know what was in Shakespeare's mind. No, we will not. We will not know exactly what his inspiration was, who, who all of the people were around him, who also inspired him. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. we have. We can do our best to, you know, examine that in fiction. Mm. For instance, Edgar Farrell's Hamlet. I really enjoyed it, and we can, we can, you know, say that. Oh, he's probably very like Prospero in the Tempest. You know, orchestrating all these mm. things. You know, with his right. library as his dukedom, all this. Mm. But as a playwright and as a as a man who was taught rhetoric in school. So you could argue both sides of the question. We will never know what his true opinions were. It's just, it's not possible. We will not. And as insane as that drives critics and students alike, 
-hmm. that's that's how it is absolutely yeah and i think it's it's good actually in some ways to have this mystery to speculate (laughs) it's fun fun. yeah i mean yeah shakespeare was unpredictable i mean every single signature we have of uh, from uh, his hand i think his name is spelled differently right and he i don't think he ever used the spelling that we use today which is kind of ironic uh-huh. <laughs> it is ironic. It's very fun. But yeah, it's a sign that we've we've put our own spin on Shakespeare. I mean, he's been long gone, 400 years. <laughs> these are our plays now. Absolutely. And the number of things that people have done with these plays, like I did a production, was it last year? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. The years are flying by. It was either last year or, yeah, it was last year, um, of Hamless. Uh, which was Hamlet without Hamlet. So they cut out Hamlet from Hamlet and only had Hamlet appear as a this shadow of a human that appeared in certain scenes, but did not say anything. And it was, it was incredible. I love that play very, very much. That's really interesting. It was super interesting. I'm guessing it was a lot shorter without Hamlet. Oh, yes. It was, I think, not even 90 minutes, maybe 75 minutes or 80 minutes. Like, Well, yeah, if you cut Hamlet's rambling, that sounds about right. <laughs> oh, yes. You cut and, and they kept it to the essential players. There wasn't, for example, the digger. There wasn't a bunch of characters that we find in, in the actual uh, full text of it all. Don't get me wrong, I'm still team, let's do the full thing. But it was a cool perspective that the play focused on everybody who wasn't Hamlet. So we could really hyper-focalize on King Claudius. King Claudius became the main character, which I played. And it was it was oh, fun. Nice. Um, on Claudius, on Gertrude, on uh, Ophelia, of course, Laertes, and Polonius. We really, really focused on those five. Of course, we we also saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the politics that was going on with the other countries. Like, we saw all of that. But those five were really the ones we, like, laser focused on. And it it was beautiful. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. I want to know exactly how that went. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, an hour and 12 minutes. You are intriguing me, Jackie. You are intriguing me. I'm telling you. And um, this group called the Rude Mechanicals, they are, they are a theater group here in um, where I live in Maryland. Uh, there's the Rude Mechanicals at American University, but this is not it. <laughs> this is a community theater here in Maryland. They do this a lot because they have gone through the entire canon. They are hardcore Shakespeare group, all of Shakespeare's works, including some that are like, maybe by Shakespeare, they have done. And so they're interested sometimes in doing these things where they cut out somebody (laughs) from uh, the story to see how it changes. I know they had been talking about cutting out, um, was it cutting out Macbeth from Macbeth? I don't remember, but doing something like that. Okay, so who's gonna kill the king? Oh, no, it, it was Lear, actually. Somebody wanted to cut out Lear from King Lear, which I was like, huh. Who's gonna divide the kingdom? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what that would look like. Very interested in what that would look like. Mm. Oh, wow. This has been a lovely conversation, Jackie. Yes. Thank you so much. I mean, how about you tell our listeners what you're up to at the moment so we can find you and all the amazing work you do. Thank you so much. Um, Coming up for me, I am directing a musical called Rapunzelella White at Best Medicine Rep. Uh, This is in Gaithersburg, Maryland. It's an original musical about um, the fairy, fairy tales, you know, characters, Snow White, Rapunzel and Cinderella. It's very cute, very lighthearted, very short. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm an understudy for Alonso and Gonzala in uh, The Tempest, uh, William Shakespeare's The Tempest at Roundhouse Theatre. It's a joint production between Roundhouse Theatre and uh, Folger Theatre. It's an equity 
production and it's a production that has serious magic. If you know the world famous magician Teller, he is the co-director of the show and they're doing some incredible magic in this show. It's wow. Wow. Oh, that sounds like you're going to have a lot of fun with that. Oh, I wish you the best, Jackie. Thank you so much. So much. Welcome to The Teenager's Take, the short bit at the end of each episode where I talk about some of the things that stood out to me in each discussion and offer some ideas to take away from our conversations. Jackie is truly a delight, is she not? I've said it more than once and I'll say it again. If you haven't seen Wyden Universal Theatre's King John and want to see this incredible actress do an impressive Italian accent as a Machiavellian Pope, what are you waiting for? Look it up on YouTube and have fun. Some familiar voices will also be there, my own for one, and the fantastic Fenner Capellas too. Jackie described Shakespeare's language as poetry, as having a rhythm and cadence all of its own, and I totally agree. We already know Shakespeare was a prolific poet and sonnet writer. In fact, he was probably better known for writing Venus and Adonis in his own day than for his playwriting at the beginning. Though, of course, one overtook the other, as we can see in Robert Greene's snarky upstart crow, tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide comment. Poetry in its literal form is scattered throughout his works, from the elegant sonnet that culminates in Romeo and Juliet's first kiss, to Ariel's mystical song to Ferdinand in The Tempest. But Shakespeare's entire text is steeped in it. His plays, written in verse and iambic pentameter, are poetic in form and structure and sound, but poetry goes beyond form into meaning. Poetry captures something essential, something subtle yet universal in its passions. As Orlando turns trees into books when writing poems for his Rosalind, Shakespeare wrote a poetic world into existence that captured culminating messages from this world and depicted emotions artistically without idealising them. When Hamlet begs that his too, too solid flesh would melt, when Constance speaks of her loss, when Lear calls himself a very foolish fond old man, when Juliet weeps alternately for Tybalt and Romeo and tries to rationalise what kind of grief she should feel, this is poetry in its true essential form. Now I would love, and I mean love, to see Jackie as Juliet. The problem of typecasting that she refers to is an age-old issue in the theatre world, and especially so in the Shakespeare sphere. The thing is, Shakespeare did a kind of inherent typecasting when writing his plays. He tailored his works to the strengths of the actors in his company. For instance, William Kemp, whose name appears in several places in the first folio instead of the names of the roles he played in margins. This worked for Shakespeare, given that he was writing for a distinctive group and could play to their strengths. However, there's no reason for it nowadays. Casting a certain character outside of the typically defined category for them, e.g. for Juliet, a cute little girl, it can be transformative. In 2010, Sean Phillips played Juliet at the tender age of 76. There's more than one way to cast your Shakespeare, and this lesson needs to be learned, especially with regard to the biggest roles in the canon, which had the looming shadow of Richard Burbage cast over them. Anyone can play these roles, just as anyone can love and enjoy the plays. If David Garrick could play Hamlet, then I can too. Continuing on this theme, Jackie's mention of Hamlet really got me thinking. What are Shakespeare's plays without the main character? without the looming shadows of the greats cast over them and putting them on a pedestal. When we remove the soliloquies of Hamlet, we are left with an analysis of the characters whose lives he impacts, with the backstories brought forth to become the main stories. And that's a really fascinating thing to think about. I'm really intrigued about King Learless, as I understand, and I can't wait to watch the Hamlet production Jackie very kindly sent me. I hope you all enjoyed this incredible episode. See you next week.